Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, an abolitionist podcast for Maine. Uh, we're coming to you from the Portland Media Center. I'm Catherine Besteman, the host of the bod- podcast, and we're being assisted by Josh Riddle, who is the sound engineer from the Portland Media Center. And also, um, our episodes are being opened and closed with music courtesy of Samuel James. Today's episode is on abolitionist feminism, and it features, features Sama Abdurraqib, who is a associate director of the Maine Humanities Council, and she's also a board member of Survivor Speak USA. She'll be in conversation today with Dee Clark, who is the founder of Survivor Speak USA. They'll be talking about how survivors experience criminalization and how it impacts their lives long-term. They'll be talking about how centering the last girl creates new alternatives to our current system of punishment. Sama, Dee, so delighted to have you here um, featured on our episode today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Really excited to be here. Dee, so excited to talk with you as always. So as Catherine said, my name is Sama, um, and I have been on the board for Survivor Speak for, Speak for, I think about two or three years. I'm currently the associate director of the Maine Humanities Council, but before I came to the Humanities Council um, in uh, March of 2021, I spent five years working at the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. And and that is how I had the pleasure of working with Dee and working with other survivors um, in my work life. um, so I know D in my personal life. I know D in my like um, in some of my my like board professional life. But I also spent time getting to know D and working with D in my in my forty hour week job. So uh, I'm always excited to spend time with D um, and to bask in D's knowledge and wisdom. So I'm just gonna to begin by introducing D, and then we have some questions that Dee and I um, talked about together and we'll get into the questions. Does that seem good, Dee? That's excellent. Uh, Dee Clark founded Survivor Speak USA in 2015 following um, involvement with Maine's burgeoning anti-trafficking movement. These experiences sharpened her belief that survivors must be driving solutions. Survivor Speak was formed to push the movement to address root causes of what, um, of uh, what, uh, D and other survivor leaders call sexploitation, systemic poverty, racism, and misogyny. Survivor Speaks lives out its mission via a combination of outreach, education, and training, legislative policy advocacy, and intensive survivor mentorship and leadership development. Uh, for more than 20 years at this point, D. Clark has been organizing, educating, and empowering adults and youth to speak out for public policy that affects their lives. She has organized groups to march, demonstrate, collaborate, dialogue, create, to have and give voice, and to be at the table of decision makers. Dee is known for her diplomacy and grace, and I can attest to that, from meeting with governors and legislators to interacting directly with sex trafficked and exploited women. Um, Dee comes by her wisdom from experience, uh, she grew up in a severely abusive environment in a Boston housing project in and out of foster care from ages five to eight. By 12 years old, she was being sex trafficked by a pimp and finished growing up in the combat zone as a go-go dancer and stripper. 
As a young mother, she sometimes ended up homeless and in shelters while working several jobs and relying on soup kitchens, food stamps, and food boxes. Um, so that's just a little bit, but Dee is um, so much to so many people um, here in Portland and beyond Portland. And so I'm just grateful, Dee, that you wanted to you know, share some of your knowledge and wisdom today. Thank you, Sima. Thank you for having me. And I'm always excited and ready to brag about Survivors Speak USA. So this is easy peasy for me. <laughs> um, so my first question for you um, is, what is Survivors Speak? I, I said a few things about it, but I, I, I feel like um, this, you know, this program is going to have some wide, wide reach. And it's just an opportunity to hear for people to hear to get a you know a fuller explanation of the work that Survivor Speak has been doing. So what is Survivor Speak? Well, one thing is we're the only one, we're the only organization, you know, grassroots at that, that is all led, 100 percent organized and led by survivors of sexploitation, of mm -hmm. prostitution, regardless how we got there. A thing I'm very proud of is that we're space takers. We are taking up space. Yes. Survivors Speak is taking up space, especially black and brown survivors. And we're showing up in the places that have kept us out in the past. And um, we have a lot to say and we're mm -hmm. not shut down. We're speaking out and speaking up. Um, <laughs> including some organizations that address sex trafficking have mm. kind of pushed us aside or really didn't let us speak much because we are the solutions and people need to move out the way and make a way. And we need to get rid of the white status quo because here in Maine, for the most part, all the organizations that are addressing anything to do with prostitution, whatever they think their solution is, are led by mostly white women. Mm -hmm. um, some are actually a little bit moving off the way and <laughs> including us. Mm -hmm. Survivors Speak is six years of functioning. We're a functioning organization. We're real, we're here. Um, but the thing is, you know, survivors of what? <laughs> so there's a lot of talk around the state and other places about sex trafficking. Yeah. And we like to talk about sexploitation. We specifically like to use the word prostitution because mm -hmm. that's what it boils down to really when we really look at this in, in the rawest sense, it is somebody is exchanging sex or some kind of sex act for something in exchange, some kind of money or resource. That's really what it comes down to. And there's all kinds of ways it gets those two together. Yeah. including human sex trafficking, which is forced fraud or coercion, including sexploitation, which is a lot more deeper and people are forgetting about that. So to us, that's really important. We are advocates. Um, we're advocates for the things important to other survivors, but especially important to our community of the last girls. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a fellowship of peers Yep, and again, I'll say, we're led by three women of color, all mm -hmm. who have experienced some form of prostitution. Yeah, I just wanna just testify at, to um, the, 
the impact and it's not, you know, it's not like been easy to, to, to make that impact. Um, but the impact that the, that the you and the survivor leaders across the state and who are, you know, connected to survivor speak have had, um, in the anti-trafficking movement. When I started at the domestic violence coalition, um, and was working with the domestic violence advocates to, to kind of increase their capacity around serving trafficking um, and sexploited survivors. I just stepped into a whole world of stuff that I didn't know, didn't know much about, but had to learn very quickly. Right, yeah. And the way that you all were able to like shift the language that we were using um, and to, to shift the frameworks that we were using in terms of what care and support looks like, um, was and and you know how shift the ways that we engage with survivors survivor leaders like recognizing that so many of us and these white led organizations or get paid to show up to these tables but you know we are asking survivor leaders to show up and we're not compensating them for their experience and so just I just need to say um, say all that and I and I am saying that you know the impact it was not it was not easy because as you said. Um, survivor leaders continue to be marginalized. And I just need to name that. Was it D? Was it? I lose track of time because of 2020, but was it 2019? So na um, National Human Trafficking Awareness Month is in January. And was it 2019? In January 2019, you were recognized. Yes. Um, you and Survivor Speaks were recognized in, in Portland, Maine, um, as... <laughs> leaders um and i think january 6th talking about portland and my brain went to augusta because if you don't mind just putting this little note up, um for several years survivor speech showed up single-handedly by myself the only survivor at the state house including the page was there from the beginning of starting to have a day set aside for Human Trafficking Week, and I would speak, and I would be invited, I would ask to be invited, and I'd have a lot to say, and I was learning on the way, and I wanted to have expungement, I wanted to get rid of the records, until I learned about vacature, but every year I went alone, and every year it was crafted by some organization, mm -hmm. and the year before the last time, I started squawking about, you can't organize us, we can organize ourselves, and then... Mm -hmm. I think it was 2018, was the, maybe it was 2019, the first year that Survivor Speak took over that whole day and organized it ourselves. And my board members helped me. And it was a beautiful day. It was all done by survivors. And we had more survivors speaking than ever before. Um, but that was a really important day to me because I've been going for so many times by myself. And now I was with a whole lot of people and we rolled out our campaign for vacature because we knew we needed vacature. But I just wanted to mention that too, but you were talking about Portland and the city. Um, that, yeah. Yeah, that was true too. That's, I think that was 2018, D. That was, that was really glorious. I think that was 2018. Yeah, um, so many survivors showed up. It was just my, oh. Yeah, and people, I just remember there were legislators who were like trying to, wanted to put in trafficking bills and they were like, well, maybe I should be, you know, there, mm -hmm. there were 
legislators who have been working with survivor speeds, but there are other legislators who wanted to put in traffic, anti-trafficking bills, and they showed up to the event and they were like, oh, maybe I should be talking to survivors because it seems like that it seems like survivors are leading the way here. Um, I, that was one of that was like a high moment for me as a just as a person who is just in admiration and, and, and as a board member, like people realizing, oh, um, you know, we need to be collaborating with survivors. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, who are the survivors that Survivor Speak serves? It's, it's really a variety, but I'll say many, many, many are mothers who have had children. And um, a lot of them have had child protective services in their life. And some have lost their children and were able to get them back. But there were some that lost their children and never were able to get them back. Um, but it's just amazing that people forget that. <laughs> they just think this one thing about us and there's so many other things about us, including mm. that a lot of us have been moms or are still moms. I'm a mom, my children are adults. Um, and something that we all have in common, all of us are still in poverty, we're still very poor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have, some have been in prison or jail or both, and they're very different. Um, some, you, some have substance use disorder, not all. Some have had or are using MATs. Many didn't recognize, and it took a while for them to recognize something we all have in common, and that is the childhood traumas that took place before we were even brought into prostitution. And that's something really important I'll talk about in a minute. But we all have that in common that we have these childhood traumas that kind of help pave the way for us to continue to be violated against. Mm -hmm. um, some of us have low wage jobs that they go to and show up and do their job. Um, some have TANF, some have SSI. We have a variety of, um, I don't know what to say. Um, there are women of color, <clears throat> white women, a few women, native women. Um, we had, had members that were male. Right now we don't. The thing that is so interesting is meeting women, doing this one-on-one -on -one as well as in workshops and groups is discovering when people really believe they had these great childhoods. I did too. I was to say that and then it took a long time, but yeah, my mother did do that. But not to find blame or fault in our moms or whoever, but to recognize there's some trauma, what happened? And then to recognize that as it wasn't okay that that happened, that's difficult. Because we go, no, it wasn't that bad. No, it was pretty cool. No, it was all right. And then through these workshops we do, people start to discover, like, yeah, these are the things that took place in my life. And you're right. They shouldn't have happened. It had nothing to do with me. It wasn't my fault. And boy, did it set me up. And it's mm -hmm. all about, well, we call it victimhood development, but it's about how these traumas interfere with children's brain development mm -hmm. and interferes with their sense of self-worth and interferes with them developing a personality 
It interferes with the adolescent, interferes with so many things before a trafficker gets a hold of us. It sets us up for having troubled relationships, sets us up to find drugs or alcohol. It sets us up for so many different things. Um, but it's probably the most revealing workshop that we do that helps for women to be able to see that, to start to let some of that go. And letting it go, I think, is the key to healing. And the key to healing, once that happens, you can start moving forward. You can start dreaming again. You can start thinking, maybe I can do this, that, the other thing. But as long as you are blind to the things that happen to you, as not blind to it, but always feel like it's all because of you. This happened to me because of myself. I made these things happen. It's very hard to heal. It's very difficult to access really healthy, good mental health services today. I did eventually get that, and I got really good services. I got really good help. Later, I was able to really you know, understand and put it to words that all the confirmation and the affirmation that I received about my history helped me to heal and to grow. Mm -hmm. And that was my goal, is to try to bring that to other women that have experienced the same things I experienced. Because it's true, being in the life, sex traffic, exploitation, prostitution, choose your word, it's all the same. Being in that life is traumatic. It's hugely mm -hmm. traumatic, and there's a lot of healing. But there's a whole lot that happens before that. And yeah. I've often said it, and other women say it too, that my family, my my life as a child groomed me, prepared me to go be with a pimp. Like everything that pimp would have tried to break me, I was already broken. I was ripe for the picking. And many young girls and women are too. <clears throat> but people don't know about that. They make mm -hmm. assumptions. Could you talk a little bit about how um, survivors of sex trafficking experience criminalization and how it impacts their lives, their lives long-term. There's so much there to talk about. Mm -hmm. Like this, there's the criminalization that happens through law enforcement. And there's the criminalization that happens through poor policy, public policy. <laughs> and there's the criminalization that happens just being poor, but with child protective services. So... We can break it down to which one you want to talk about first. But I'll just go ahead, go. Just yeah. I'm gonna start with child protective services. Mm -hmm. It'll be easier. And for whatever reason, child protective services gets into a family's life. It is long lasting. They're extremely judgmental. They're not helpful at all. Mm -hmm. They may have a goal that they need to save this child, protect this child, and make this sure this child flourishes. But that's not what happens. And the mom is now going to be demonized and asked to jump through hoops and eventually set the hoops on fire with very little to no resources to do so. No guidance or direction from Child Protective Service people. Furthermore, if that mom was using Tanner, they now take that away. She has zero dollars. If that mm -hmm. child's placed where she can't get to, she has no transportation. But, and they're not helping with that. There's so many things wrong with 
what Child Protective Services does to families. Uh, I can just go on forever about this. Yeah. I had Child Protective Services in my life. They were far gone, not in my life anymore. And I thought I was going to go. I'm laughing at myself because I remember how excited I got. I was going to do, do this in-home child care thing. Everybody thought this was the thing for me. Kids like me. I like kids. I'm always doing something. I'm always playing some fun game outside, all this stuff. I couldn't do it. I got a letter. I was shocked. It was about being substantiated. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. And because twice I was substantiated from Child Protective Services. Once I invited them because I thought, here, I'm going to go tell them all these problems I'm having. They're going to come help me. I was stupid. Mm-hmm. I was stupid. But mm-hmm. anyway, it's there forever. I was able to get pine tree legal to get one removed, but it, I just wouldn't give up on it. I just wouldn't give up on it. I just wouldn't give up on it. But it, it just shows. But I wear my stuff on my sleeve. I don't care what people know about me. That's just who I am today. But I could have been at a place still where that would have just put me under myself with shame, embarrassment. It was horrible to find out I can't do that. Why? Because of that. <clears throat> this is a lot of the women that have had CPS in their life. They have that now. Yeah. There's certain things they can't do. They thought they were going to go do some kind of nurse assistance and they were going to go, you know, get this certificate, but they can't mm-hmm. because they have a substantiated child protective service thing. That's horrible. You know, yeah. they just ruined that little dream for her. So that is criminalizing moms. Now, mm-hmm. this is true. I've witnessed it and be black or brown, it's worse. People just don't know what to do or how to respond to black children. So this child's going to go live with this white family. Okay. The white family is irres- not irresponsible, sorry. <laughs> I'm not familiar with certain things that maybe we oil our skin more often, how we do our hair. So now the child's ashy. So people just think they're dirty. The child's here is nappy because they don't know what to do with it. I've seen this. I'm telling you, I've seen this. I've seen this in the um, teen shelter also, that the inexperience of what to do with black children matters a lot, you know? So here's all these things that are just making it worse. And eventually maybe that child acts out and then eventually maybe that child gets suspended. And next thing you know, they have to go to a different school. And then maybe next thing you know, they're going to juvenile detention. And that sounds far-fetched. It's not far-fetched. It's not. It, it is the truth of the matter. This does happen. And it all started with Child Protective Service. Now Child Protective Service finds out, maybe they didn't know from the beginning. And we're very crafty about who survivor speakers were all things violence against women. So they may feel like it has to do with domestic violence, it has to do with maybe um, a date rape, but we never say anything further than that. But maybe they find out that the mom was engaged in prostitution. All of a sudden that becomes an issue as if the mom was engaging in prostitution while their child was sitting there. It's just terrible and it's ignorance it's just pure ignorance and lack of education and the way the state has set it up 
so people don't even have an opportunity as a worker to learn the appropriate things. You know, they're, they're clueless. I'm wondering if you could explicitly talk about uh, one of the things you said when I, when I asked who are the survivors that that survivors speak service. You said that so so many of uh, the survivors that you were working with who have been who have been out of the life for a long time are still living in poverty. And I and I am curious about whether or not you see direct connections between whatever kind of criminalization survivors have experienced and their current experiences of poverty. I am 63 years old, I'm gonna die extremely poor. I started off really poor. I got out of life, I was really poor. I've lived all this time, raised my kids really poor, and I'm still really poor. I'm not stupid, I'm pretty creative. Very creative. I don't have no money. I've had a lot of different jobs and I know what it is. It's, it, I, I, I still struggle, but not struggle in a way I'm not able to function. But I still struggle with mental health stuff. I still tr struggle with dissociation. And one of the things I notice with all these women I meet, I see some of the things in them that I know about me. Mm -hmm. So before we talk about what's on your record and getting a job, also, untreated mental illness, lack of having a real healthy way to recover. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. in real good recovery, you need money. So I've been fortunate sometimes where I could do stuff for free. That's helpful. That's really not all the time, but sometimes I got to do some yoga. I learned to meditate and go to these Buddhist meditation things certain things that are just really loving and kind to my body. Mm. People need those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But then also to be able to apply for a job. So my problems with applying for a job, I would lie through my teeth and I get almost every job I apply for, but I didn't know how to do it. And eventually it would fall apart and I couldn't do it. And so somebody might want to apply for a job and they still think they can do that job. And they can't, they don't have a bridge to show them how to do that work. They just go do it and it doesn't last. But also sometimes people can't get hired as well as can't get apartments because they have records. Mm -hmm. And it used to matter a lot to us if they had a record of prostitution. That's a little bit smaller now. It's not that big of a deal because they have so many records of other things that That's all right. happened during the time that they were being exploited, you know? Yeah. So, they're stuck with these records, all these charges, and they, they just sit there. And then they rear their head as soon as someone decides, I think I really want to go do this. Mm -hmm. I think I can go do this. And they can't because someone looks back and says, oh, and they list the things on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I feel like um, that that is a big piece of education that, so, that you and other survivor leaders have been doing in this state. Uh, around the need for vacatur is that, you know, so much we have, you know, the anti-trafficking movement here in Maine spends so much time focusing on, on, on prostitution charges, right? Yeah. And, but there are all these other charges that have deep impact on survivors' lives that aren't prostitution charges that, that, that still, like you said, just stick, sit, sit there, that, that, um, 
that maybe that uh, survivors pick up while they were being trafficked. Exactly. And they just sit there. I love what you just said that they and and then they rear their head, you know, oh. when a survivor is trying to do something. And I think that that is. I feel like I hope that that's a piece of learning that, that that's a piece of education that you all I know have been doing in the state. And I hope that people who are listening to this podcast can understand that it's not it's not just the it is not just the prostitution charge. Um, like understanding sort of trafficking survivors as victims means all of it, you know? Um, yeah. so. Right now, when we say trafficking survivors, it leaves a whole other people out. But still, the point is, they do have a lot of other things to worry about besides prostitution charges. And we did, Survivors Speak, try to pass a law for vacature. And in the work session, it got thrown out and we got invited to be part of the records review, I'm sorry, criminal records review committee to work on things such as vacature, expungement, sealing records. And it was a great experience, but it's next to near impossible to remove a record for a whole bunch of reasons. But the, the biggest entity that helps with that, guides with that to do it or not to do it is the Bureau, Bureau of, and there is so much, so much to know about how to remove a record that the best that will happen right now, the way it stands, is to have a record sealed mm. because the way main laws are written, you can't have expungement, it's not on the books, it's unconstitutional. You can't have vacature, it's not on the books, it's unconstitutional. And the reason it is, is because we have a executive director that handles pardons. Dee, I'm wondering if we can pivot a little bit to talk about The Last Girl because that is so, that concept is very central to Survivor Speaks work. And and I don't, you know, like, I, I feel like I'm very familiar with it because I, um, you know, being on the board and hearing you talk about it so often, but I I don't know that everyone is familiar. So I'm wondering if you can talk about who who is the last girl and what does it mean to center the last girl? Can I tell you that just briefly to get the language out of the way? So yeah. the reason Survivor Speak wants to say the words, the term sex trafficking doesn't work is because sex trafficking, the way it's been educated in Maine, means somebody that's engaging in prostitution because of force, fraud, or coercion, and there's a third party, a trafficker, a pimp, a dope dealer. Yeah. Exploitation or sexual exploitation is somebody that might not have that third party, or they might have a boyfriend that's okay with her doing it, and that's how they get by, but for the most part, are really, really stuck. So marginalized, have nothing, bouncing around shelters, couch surfing, sleeping, campsites, and so forth, might be addicted to some kind of substance, might have an active, um, I mean, um, undiagnosed mental illness. And that is their only means of food, or a place to sleep, anything, anything. And years ago, advocates called it survival sex and survival speak kept barking at that because no one should have to survive doing that. It's exploitation. So that's why we tried to use the word sexploitation to be inclusive. But the last girl. Thank you. Um, thank you for listening to that. The last girl is usually young, black, brown, indigenous, but trans. They usually come from poor neighborhoods, poor families. 
not always, but usually have been exposed to violence um, and other traumas. And they are the most exploited. They're the most exploited nationwide. They're the most exploited globally. Globally, black and brown children are the most exploited in indigenous, sorry. That means they're more trafficked, they're more sexploited children and women. That is enough to say, let's stop what we're doing and pay attention to this. Let's pay attention to that. That's a big piece of information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let's look at who here in our nation, who, who are last girls, black, brown, indigenous, or trans. Well, we know this, that black girls are often hypersexualized, right? Mm -hmm. They go to school and they have to deal with all this white supremacy. <laughs> you know, excuse me for the people who are listening and um, fragility. They have to deal with colorism. I mean, that's a lot. And then last girls also deal with poverty usually. Um, we're here in Maine, it happens here in Maine, but specifically where I come from, still today <clears throat> in other cities where last girls are living in a, an environment where they're not safe, <clears throat> they're preyed upon, um, they're easy targets. And most last girls are hoping for a way out. They're trying mm -hmm. to make their way to whatever, to school, to auntie's house, whatever, and hoping nothing happens on the way. But at the same time, hoping something good could happen. And that good might be this liar promising her everything. Mm -hmm. And it just sounds so good. And she'll get trapped. Last girls usually aren't doing the, that great in school. Last girls usually are generational of not just poverty, but other issues, you know, that are attached to family members that have other things going on, aunties, grandmothers, mothers. I'm fortunate I raised my kids here in Maine, but when I go home, which I don't do as often, but still have family members that are kind of stuck in other lifestyles, but at the same time, the whole neighborhood is that way. My whole neighborhood was a particular way when I was a kid. I don't see that here and I'm grateful for it. But the thing about black and brown girls, that people don't see them. They don't see them, they're not interested in, you know, maybe because I was light skinned, I got by better. But colorism is alive and well. Racism, we don't like you too dark. And other um, people of color sometimes are the same way because that's how, what's bashed into our heads. But having easy access to them, people looking at that 12-year-old like she's, you know, 18, 19, 20. And the people mm -hmm. looking are like 20, 30, that kind of stuff. It's happening constantly. Besides not being seen, sometimes these very powerful feminists, white feminists, and sometimes privileged black feminists don't see them either. They just don't see them in, in these feminist ideas to come together and do some kind of something. They leave this, this whole group of people out, last girls. 
and and when we talk about some of the movements around here, they leave out the last girl. The best thing that's happened in COVID is this beautiful uprising of Black Lives Matter because they took a big spotlight and shined it on things that a lot of us have been yelling for a long time. So in the midst of all of this, hopefully people will start to see who the last girl is and start to address her. You know, last girls should be able to go out and play and have their youth and their innocence. They should be able to not have to worry about who's looking at their butt or their breasts because that happens. This is what happens. Yeah, it happens to other little girls too, but particularly, particularly, they should be enabled to be able to learn, to explore and to play. I'm just going to have to say it. There's a group of um, young Black people that make that happen for children and it's... Um, Rise and shine. Rise and shine. I'm like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful thing. It's just all about pure, let's go explore, have some fun, learn something all for black and brown girls. It's beautiful. We should have loads of that, loads and loads of that. Yeah. And it's not saying, oh, because we're black, you think we don't expose our kids to something. We're brown. No, we're not saying that. But what I am saying is that sometimes they have less opportunity for those things. And sometimes they're stuck in a life where it's really difficult to live. And that's mm -hmm. what I know. That's what I've seen. That's what I still see. Not for all black and brown girls, but for lots. And with going to New York, I don't go to Chicago, but I hear about in Chicago. I do go to Boston and to Worcester. That's what I see. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't, I don't like these derogative terms, but the hood is real. They just don't have one here. So the, how, how does centering the last girl create new alternatives to our current system of punishment? What is the work that Survivor Speak is doing to center the last girl that creates new alternatives? Well, I, we, first off, we need to get rid of the word punish. Why are we gonna be punishing people? For real. Oh, you did this. Now you need to be punished. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I just don't think it's a good idea. And it's going to take, a, I don't know how many generations to get rid of that thought theory idea. Mm -hmm. Because it's, I think it's more beautiful, easier, easier to grow, learn, and change by loving someone and helping them see what they did and moving on. I love restorative justice. I'm not saying prostitution isn't a crime or isn't bad. I'm not saying that. Or any of the things that take place, stealing anything is, is okay. I'm just saying that things that can be not looked at in a way that the person has to be punished. Hmm. So if I go out and turn tricks tonight and I get caught and someone says, we're going to punish you, how does it help me? It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't do a thing for me. If someone says, oh, we see what you're doing. <laughs> Is there some way they can help? Well, first off, I'm embarrassed that you saw it and I don't want to admit it to you, so I'm not going to say stuff. But there's ways to offer people ways out, but we don't have that here in Maine. Nobody do that. You want help? You go to general assistance. Mm. You go to, with COVID wasn't here, you go to the shelter. You go to the desk at Preble Street. 
wherever part of the town, whatever part of the state you're in. You know, there is no real help, but sex trafficked people have some help. They have dollars that are saved for them. You know, they have opportunity to receive housing vouchers. They have, op they have a lot of opportunity to receive a lot of things. Last girls don't have that. And when mm -hmm. I say last girls, I'm mostly thinking of black, brown, indigenous, and trans. What can we do for them? How can we assist them? How about one, let's say we want to get rid of their charges. Let's remove those charges, right? Let's say we want to help them stay in school. Let's do everything we can to help that child stay in school, high school, whatever they are. Let's do everything we can to help that caregiver, that mom, whoever's taking care of that child to be lifted so the kid can be lifted, you know? It's more of an intervention, if anything, because if we don't help the last girl as is, she very well might turn out to be the next generation of prostitution. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Dee. Last um, couple of questions. What what does safety look like for um, for the last girl? What does safety look like? Right now, she's not safe, not even a little bit. But if she was safe, we would be doing all those kinds of things. You know, she would be flourishing in an environment that's safe and, and, and healthy and she'd be seeing people that look like her as well as not, but definitely seeing people that look like her that are also flourishing and doing well. Um, she would feel good about herself. She would feel good about her body and not the people staring at her. She'd feel good about her hair. She'd feel good about everything about herself and her, and her relatives. She would be accessing um, school the way she should be accessing school. She'd be accessing uh, the potential to, to dream, you know, mm -hmm. to be, to, to flourish. I did a workshop with oh, Mija, Main Equal Justice. Mm -hmm. This is years ago. And Nicole, Nicole, she's married to Greg Payne. We spoke like bookends. Neither one of us knew what, what, who was going to say what. She got up and spoke about how her life was planned out before she was born because she was very privileged. And mm -hmm. she just spoke so beautifully about it. And <laughs> my thing was <laughs> the opposite of that. But, you know, she hung out and played on the floor and crawled around with other kids that were gonna have the same thing she had. You know, mm -hmm. they all were going to college. She, five years old playing in kindergarten high school, all of that, it was just inbred in them of their success and their joy and how things were going to play out for them. But for some of us, last girls, that's not how it is. We can play on the floor with other kids like ourselves, but, but <laughs> no one's thinking about that. If anything, maybe we're hoping um, big brother doesn't get harmed, put in jail, shot, something like that or mommy comes home, or just not the same thing. You know, surviving in poverty, um, all of that. 
very, very different. And the thing was, neither one of us knew what the other one was going to say. So it was quite interesting. And it just never left me. This, how do we give last girls that opportunity? Mm. You know, we got to start right now. Mm -hmm. It's a big Mm. shift. It's a big shift to make it possible that children like Nicole's folks can grow and think and be, have it just in them that whatever that success is going to look like is going to happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that D just the, the possibility to giving the last girl the possibility to dream and then to make, to have those dreams realized. Right. Exactly. Look like that's really powerful. The last question. Um, what does the community and however you want to interpret that, but what does the community need to do to support, um, survivors and put survivors first? Well, one, I keep thinking about the word survivors, but how do you recognize us and how do you call us? But that's a situation there that maybe in a minute I'll talk about it because what can community do? Well, this community that our neighbors and in this community are providers, a community as neighbors, sometimes they get interested and, and they want to make something happen and they come up with big ideas and they start organizing around it and trying to make something happen without asking any of us. <laughs> Gee, we want to come help. And we're building this thing here. You want to come? You know You know what I mean? Like, yeah. come talk to us and we'll tell you if we should even build it over there or not. Um, yeah. But believe it or not, public policy affects us all the time. And someone might be hearing about some policy and think it's going to be great for everyone, but it leaves us out or it harms us. Um, and so they might attach themselves to an organization because that organization says they're addressing sex traffic issues. Well, not necessarily are their ideas good for us either. The first thing actually we need, but there's no funding for, is safe housing. Coming out of the life, and I'm not going to turn tricks anymore. I'm not going to be, you know, engaging in prostitution anymore. And now I'm just, I'm going to be okay because. I'm going to go to this detox, or I'm going to go to this recovery place, or I'm going to go to the safe house. But whatever place I'm in, when I leave and cross the threshold, I'm homeless. There's still no place to go. Um, And people can show up for policy around homelessness. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to affect the people I'm talking about right now. I think people have to say it out loud. You know, we want funding for people coming out of prostitution, mm. specifically, mm-hmm. not in a group of people they might get caught up in. We want funding to help people coming out of prostitution that have substance use disorders, that have untreated mental illness, that need case management, that need therapeutic services. Mm. Mm-hmm. Be writing people right now about it. Um, and they can be careful of their language because we do walk amongst you. <clears throat> maybe maybe we're at McDonald's with you, I don't know. You know, and language does exclude us sometimes. We hear people be very empathetic around sex trafficking and that wasn't our story. Mm-hmm. So maybe those were exploited. I, I, I think being- 
language is such an important thing. So naming people who are coming out of sex trafficking in particular when, um, or who are coming out of prostitution, I'm sorry, in yeah. particular yeah. When, when, it's, when it's time to do collaborative work or look for funding or, or whatever, not, not hoping that people who are coming out of prostitution are going to be addressed by, some, by an, another initiative that ends up just eclipsing. Yeah. I like yeah. that. I think it would be great if people that were coming out could be granted like temporary assistance with main care, vocational rehabilitation, therapist case management, a stipend of SSI or something, an EBT card. The, the thing that people talk about that run safe houses will talk about how all of a sudden there's this pink cloud. I got a big grin on my face because I'm just thinking of people that I know this happened to because, oh, okay, I'm asleep in this gorgeous house in my gorgeous bedroom all by myself. No one's getting in the bed with me and I think, oh, this is wonderful. And then I'm going to get up and I can take a shower with all these great soaps and everything. Okay, and I can do it the next day and the next day and the next day. And then all of a sudden there's this pink cloud. They're as happy as anything can be. And now safety sets in. Everything is safe. I'm okay. And then the trauma hits them. Mm -hmm. Yes, Steve hits them. You know? Um, and if they weren't in a safe environment to help cushion that, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. That's where a lot of help is needed. Thank you, Dee. Uh, thank you for sharing all this wisdom and this knowledge, and um, I appreciate you always. Um, I think that I think that's it, folks. Thank you for thank you for turning in. Please um, go learn more about Survivor Speaks. Learn um, more about D and learn about the work that they're doing. Please check out um, D is uh, making the last girl first or uh, the. Last Girl First, which is a stage play that Dee has been working really hard on. Oh, I about uh, that. Yes. Um, and you can learn more about that through, I think, Portland Ovations, right, Portland Dee? Portland Ovation, yes. Okay. So go ch check out their website and you can learn more about that. Thank you, Dee. Thanks, Sama. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you both so much, Sama, Dee, for the conversation. Um, some of the themes that you picked up on. Uh, are resonant with many of the other themes across the episodes in this in this series, especially D. The the question that you raised: Why do we need to be punishing people? That is the big question. Why are we so invested in punishment over investing in people, over in providing uh, people and communities the care they need to support and flourish, to to be supported and to and to flourish? And um, that question is. You know, the most pressing in relation to the most vulnerable among us, the last girls that you that you write about and that you work with and that you work so hard to support. So thank you for taking the time to join us today. Next time on the Freedom and Captivity podcast, which will be issued next week, we're going to be hearing from uh, Kate Vaughn and Kayla Kalel, who are co-founders of a birth justice collective. We're going to be talking with Wendy Smith, who is a Washington County Community College student and a resident of the Southern Maine Women's Reentry Center. They're going to be talking about how the carceral system impacts families. So please join us then. Uh, thanks again to uh, Josh Riddle, the sound engineer, the Portland Media Center for producing the podcast and to Samuel James, whose music opens and closes each episode. Thanks very much.